Welcome to The Lit Review, a podcast sparked by a moment of urgency, recognizing mass political education as key for our liberation struggles. Every week, your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad, will chat with people we love and respect about relevant books for the movement. Everything from history to theories around gender to sci-fi and beyond. We know that political study is not accessible for a variety of reasons. The high cost of books, academic jargon, the failures of our underfunded school systems, time barriers, and more. Our hope is that this podcast helps address some of those issues, making critical knowledge more accessible to the masses. Think SparkNotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Monica Trinidad. Thank you for listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 26 of the Lit Review. Um, Today we're here with our guest, Allison Copet. Um, She's going to be talking about the book Exile and Pride, Queerness, Disability, and Liberation by Eli Clare. Um, Allison is pretty amazing. Allison is the disability arts organizer with Bodies of Work and also the arts administrator um, and access bitch with Rebirth Garments, which is um, an amazing project. I actually got a chance to participate for the first time at Fed Up Fest this year. Um, And yeah, you should check it out. Uh, Go on Facebook, look up Rebirth Garments. Um, So Allison is also the co-creator of the Not Sorry Project and on the editorial board of Monstering. It's a literary magazine for disabled women and non-binary folks. And she's also currently a doctoral student in disability studies at UIC. So thank you so much for being on our show, Allison. How are you doing and how are you feeling today? Yeah, I feel good. I'm really happy to be here. I'm really inspired by all the plants around. (laughs) And um, I'm really excited to talk about this book. It's probably the most important book to me that exists. Wow. So that's awesome. Well, big treat to get to talk about it. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. So who are you? What do you Um, do and why? Sure. Well, um, I guess I'm lots of things. Um, I'm an avid pickle maker. Um, I'm a queer and disabled artist scholar. Um, I am um, a disability art activator and uh, access instigator in all the spaces that I kind of creep my way into. Um, I identify as a, a time traveler and a queer crip person who uses femme identity for subversive intent. Um, yeah, and I think I, I do all of it. I'm also a doctoral student in disability studies, which I guess is maybe relevant as well. Um, and I kind of try to integrate activism and art into my scholarly work. Um, and I guess all of it I do because I believe in disability justice. Um, I believe in kinesthetic experiences and taking charge of our representation. Um, and because I care about art and creative ways of knowing. I've been here for coming up on five years. Um, I'm from Cleveland and then had a brief stint in the West Coast and came back here. Don't we all have a yeah. brief stint in <laughs> the West just Coast? A little just a little, you know, like Keep five months, you know, and, just, <laughs> and then we come right back to Chicago. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, so tell us about this book. Yeah. What um, what led you to read this book? Um, what is it about for folks that have never read it before? Sure. So um, this book is, I think, um, a really phenomenal intersectional text that examines the intersections of queerness and disability, environmentalism, um, class and rural upbringing. Um And I read it because I had had a friend who took kind of a mini-series class at Oberlin with Eli um, and loved his book. And he talked to me about it a lot until I finally 
got around to reading it. Um, and I had a queer identity at that point, but had not fully um, developed a disability identity. Um, sometimes folks with less apparent disabilities, I think, come around to that a little bit later because we are taught that disability is bad and sad. Um, and so uh, I had worked in the disability community for many years with adults with IDD, um, but I read this book and it became the first disability studies book that I had ever read. Um, and I'm so grateful that my first introduction to um, kind of a political disability awareness was with something so intersectional and so complex that also felt really accessible to me, um, even though I had no disability studies background at that time. So now it's like eight years later and now I have a master's in disability studies and that's what I do with my doctoral work, but it was so early on. And uh, yeah, so that kind of, I guess, that's how I read it and how I got here now. Awesome. And can you tell us a little bit about uh, the author, Eli Clare? Sure, yeah. So Eli is a disability activist and essayist and poet. Um, he has a really incredible history um, with all kinds of political activism um, and environmentalism. He's from rural Oregon, um, Port Orford, Oregon, and um, comes from a logging town and so has a really a complex relationship with where he's from and also his environmentalist um, identity. Um, yeah, but he wrote it in 1999, which I think is, is relevant to talk about because it's now 18 years later and it's still, I mean, I just read it again this week and it's still so relevant and it still feels so complex. Yeah, can you just explain a little bit about how uh, Eli lays the book out? Sure. So. I think the thing that is very beautiful and also can be challenging is that there's so much nonlinearity woven throughout this book. Um, it's um, creative nonfiction, and there's a lot of memoir in it, but there's also a lot of theory written into it. And I think that that is part of the way that he kind of eases people into um, kind of a political disability consciousness is through weaving stories that um, are diverse. I think some are... Um, people can relate to more than others, you know, but there are, people find bits all through it that really resonate with them. And then through that, he's also kind of weaving in um, important parts of disability consciousness and things about the disability rights movement that were really important and um, relating them even to histories, uh, like disability histories about the freak show and um, kind of making connections across um, various disability communities from various times. So he's kind of doing a bit of time traveling through there as well, that he has conversations with um, people who worked the freak show, and he kind of has these beautiful dialogues that allow you to time travel with him a little bit. When I hear, when I think of exile, right, I think of like um, uh, not having a home, right, or not, or, or being forced out of your home, right? Um, and I know he, he mentions a little bit in here, like the body as home. Um, and so like, yeah, can you just talk about that part a little bit? Absolutely. He works with the idea of, the idea of exile in a lot of different ways. Um, a lot of this book is about his experiences with abuse and the ways that the various ways that um, our bodies are stolen from us um, through abuse, through trauma, through various oppressions. Um, and so I think a lot of this book he's working, kind of grappling with 
um, sexuality after abuse and understanding identity after trauma and how do you kind of um, find home in your body and figure out your body and figure out your identity um, after those things have been taken from you in some ways. He um, also understands exile as in home, I mean, he has such a complex relationship with his home, like his, the body as home, but also with um, where he comes from. So he is a queer disabled person who grew up in a very rural area, and there are ways that he has felt exiled from that place um, for various reasons, um, and doesn't want to return, or knows that he couldn't return, and so um, feeling exile, I think, is something that happens from the inside out, like from the body and radiating outwards, but also from the spaces that we live in and the spaces that we leave. So why the exile and pride, like together? Like why do those, why is that the title? Oh yeah, um, I think a lot of it has to do with coming into your own and coming to be able to claim your identity and to take it back and to find home in your communities and to find home in new spaces, like in new spaces that you live, um, in new communities that you're um, traveling through, um, and to kind of find spaces of joy and pride uh, throughout. Uh, you know, I was I mentioned earlier about how disability we're taught is bad and sad, and that there is this thing about disability identity that we have to unlearn that. Like, that's not something that just gets gets into your head and that you can live through. And so I think that there is something about meeting communities, um, and for a lot of identities, for queer identity, um, for disability identity, and kind of what happens when you get to be immersed in community or when you get involved in political activity and can kind of um, grow pride through that and practice pride through that. There's this beautiful poem by Laura Hershey, who's a disabled um, poet who wrote this poem called You Get Proud by Practicing. And that I think that a lot of what he's doing is practicing pride and you know exploring it in all these different ways. So right in the beginning of this book, right in the preface, it's like the first three lines in this book, um, it, it's like, I guess it's written a decade after the initial release of this book. He says um, that he gets asked the question all the time is like, why, what's, why do you, what do you want readers to take away from this book? Like, why do you want to write this book? Right. And he says, I want non-disabled progressive activists to add disability to their political agenda. And at the same time, I want disability activists to abandon their single issue politics and strategies. And that his answer is the same from as true as from 1989 to 2009. Um, so, I'm curious, uh, you know, what was the, um, the the political climate in 99 that he's, like, talking about? Like, what what um, what was he talking about in terms of what, what was he seeing in the non-disabled progressive activist movement that was, um, that, you know, that was leaving um, disabled folks out of the political um, realm and vice versa, right? What was he seeing in, in, um, in disability activism that was leaving things out? Yeah, it's such an important question and it's really still relevant now. Um, the disability rights movement has been criticized um, a lot for single issue politics and I think what, what Eli does that's so brilliant is like demands coalition. Um, I think his work does not make sense without 
um, integrating a politic of coalition into it. But um, yeah, the early disability rights movement um, was also mostly led by um, educated, physically disabled folks um, who did incredible work, really important work, but also um, there are so many disability identities and um, a lot of folks who were left out of that and um, a lot of other issues that were left out of it. I mean, he comes from a working class background um, and, um, and also a rural background and noticed that, um, you know, dis the disability rights movement was centered in cities as were most social movements. And um, I think now there is a movement to move uh, we talk about kind of the movement away from disability rights and into disability justice. And disability justice kind of works with a very strong anti-oppression politics um, and relies on kind of more diffuse power hierarchies and um, more intersectional awareness. Um, and that's not something that was present in, um, in early disability rights movement. I think another part also is that um, Centers for Independent Living um, during the advent of AIDS were not serving folks with HIV and AIDS. And so there was this um, disconnect there as well that um, a lot of queer folks were left out of receiving services that they could have received. Um, and so I think that's a huge thing too and is a, became a part of the divide that they were told to go elsewhere. Um, and that's something that he taught me. That is not, we had a recent conversation about it. It's not something that is written about in many books. Um, it's not something that we claim as our history, but it is. Um, and so there's a lot of work now that's being done by disabled scholars that are really trying to um, integrate more intersectionality into their work, but it is slow. And um, But similarly, disabled folks have been left out of a lot of social movements. I mean, even if we think about the structure of a protest, you know, um, that's not accessible to a lot of people. It's not accessible to folks with anxiety disorders. It's not accessible to folks with physical disabilities, um, some of them. Um, it's not... Um, accessible to elderly folks who might be disabled. You know, it, it narrows who can participate. And um, a lot of queer spaces, I mean, I've done some recent research about queer spaces that disabled people have been left out of also. So what happens when you have a disabled queer identity and you can't access queer spaces? What does that do for identity formation? So I think that he sees a lot of those gaps um, and kind of grapples with how, how do we deal with that and how do we fill the gaps and how do we explore like what is in the gap and what's happening there. So I flipped to one of the pages in the middle of the book um, and he, he mentions the medicalization of disability. Um, can you break that down? Like what does that mean? So when Eli talks about medicalization, he, he talks about it um, kind of in relation to the decline of the freak show. At the time of the decline of the freak show, medicalization was on the rise. And so folks who had been deemed freaks were kind of then channeled into a medicalized system. And when you say the freak show, you mean like literally, like the literal 
like the like the sideshows and like circus sort of thing. Absolutely. Oh yeah. wow. Okay. Um, and I mean, Eli has a really he does some really brilliant work about kind of excavating the freak show and the ways that it <coughs> objectified people of color and disabled people and folks deemed gender deviant and um, the ways that all of those oppressions work together kind of in the locus of the freak show. But the medical system uses disabled folks um, in lots of ways. Uh, Folks with physical disabilities, a lot of folks have been experienced being kind of put on display for medical students and the ways that they were kind of seen as almost their own exhibit um, in very dehumanizing ways. Um, disabled people have been institutionalized um, st and still are institutionalized um, at hugely high rates. Um, which is also a point of intersection with queer folks as well um, and many other groups of people. Um, but yeah, I think that when Eli talks about reclaiming the body, a lot of that has to do with the ways that people are medicalized and the ways that also disabled people are taught that they should be reaching for a cure all the time. Um, why not get better? You know, um, he uses examples like the MDA telethon, uh, the Jerry Lewis telethon that um, Jerry Lewis recently died. But um, for years, that was this opportunity to kind of put disabled people on display and use pity as this way to raise money. And um, they were medicalized through that. And they were, you know, told like, this is so bad and why not cure it, you know, and, and Eli writes about the ways that we've been medicalized and the ways that, um, you know, ableism tells us that we need a cure, but he says, in short, it is ableism that needs the cure, not our bodies. Um, and he goes on to say, rather than medical cure, we want civil rights, equal access, gainful employment, the opportunity to live independently, good and respectful health care, unsegregated education, we want to be a part of the world, not isolated and shunned. We want a redefinition of values that places disability not on the margins as a dreaded and hated human condition, but in the center as a challenge to the dominant culture. And he, his recent book that just came out um, this past year kind of goes back in and like really kind of excavates the idea of the cure and he looks at it in all of these really beautiful and complex ways. Yeah, but that we, we're medicalized through all of these different means, you know, through doctors and psychiatrists and um, teachers. I mean, medicalization is not just happening in in a doctor's office, right? Like, it people diagnose other people on the street, you know, and... Right, right. You know, this is actually reminding me as we talk about this medicalization, it reminds me of the the conversation um, we had with Pigeon. Pigeon was on this show um, and talked about an intersex book um, and and just being intersex. And um, we got to this point of talking about the power of the freak um, and just like finding power in being a freak and like and and, and reclaiming that. And and I I've noticed that coming up a lot in this book um, and and finding like. Uh, reclaiming freak and, and and finding pride is like a, an indirect opposition to um, internalized oppression, right? And that was just, so that those two are sort of like um, the, the both those conversations are sort of like wrapping up into themselves here. Yeah, and what does it mean to insist on reclaiming your body mind and continuing to claim it as yours and continuing to find love and joy in it? 
when it keeps getting taken from you and it keeps getting analyzed and how do you continue to grow pride and um, live in yourself and call it yours? Yeah. I want to return back to um, talking about protest, protest and disability. I think um, because this is a podcast for organizers, right? Um, and it's a podcast of like, you know, f focusing on we don't have time to read books, but we know that these books are important. So like, you know, let's talk about it. Does um, Eli Claire talk a little bit about ADAPT? Um, and if, if, if not, can you maybe talk a little bit about ADAPT and what they were doing and what does ADAPT stand for? For folks sure. that don't know, ADAPT is a direct action disability rights group um, that is still doing incredible work across the country. Um, there are, um, th yes, yeah, so there's a nationwide network, but there are um, ADAPT centers in many, many cities. Um, and Chicago has a big ADAPT group that does some really amazing work. Um, they are often associated with the group Not Dead Yet, which is also a um, direct action disability rights group. Um, so they've done a lot. They have, I think when they began, they were working with um, accessible transportation and they were a huge part. Um, I think the reason that Chicago buses are accessible. Um, and, but they've also um, done protest at nursing homes, they'll blockade um, politicians' offices. Um, they were um, associated with the um, a sit-in that um, was in 1977, which occupied the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare offices in San Francisco. Um, that was a 25-day sit-in. Um, so they've done incredible work, um, and he writes about them and kind of their role in um, the disability rights movement and what they've done. Yeah, I've seen um, a lot, especially around Medicare um, in in the recent couple of um, months um, where like folks from ADAPT were just like on the front lines, like holding it down at offices, um, uh, just doing sit-ins and, and, and blockading, you know, like still doing like direct action stuff, right? And, and but, but then also seeing like who uh, who isn't showing up, right? Who isn't out there supporting them, right? And like um, uh, seeing that very, that still that lack of intersectional and coalitional work, right? For sure. Yeah, and a lot of those folks are folks that don't participate in other protests and other direct action work because it's not accessible to them. And so I think um, ADAPT is always disability run. Um, I'm sure that there are allies that do protests with them um, and PAs and you know people that kind of become invisible um, in the stories but are there. So why do you think that it's why do you think an organizer sh or activist sh or community member why should anybody but in particular an organizer why should they read uh, this book um, especially in this moment that we're in right now? I think it's an incredibly accessible introduction to the ways that disability oppression, class oppression, queer oppression, racism, and environmental destruction are all intertwined. Um, and I think it's really important for organizers, I think organizers, to me it's a good book for organizers to kind of make the leap to understanding disability justice, because he talks a lot about other movements. Um, and so, 
you know, people who are familiar with social movements and are familiar with organizing, um, it's a great opportunity to kind of start incorporating disability politics into organizing and start thinking about what it means to have a fundraiser or an event that is up two flights of stairs or to um, create you know, spaces of inaccessibility in other ways and to kind of start thinking about how disability politics um, need to be integrated into anti-oppression politics. Um, and I think it's a great example of how it's not only important but necessary to examine each issue from all angles and to not shy away from the ones that contradict each other, right? Um, Eli really, I think he really demands and seeks a complex analysis at every turn of this book. So there are ways that we have sometimes, um, you know, conflicts within communities or things that seem like they can't be figured out, you know, because it's just how it is. And um, I think he really pushes folks to get in there and to see what like, what is going on and um, so from it and I think he does such an incredible job of theorizing communities and thinking about how to build coalition um, he wants this work you know he wants work to be accessible to disabled loggers um, he wants his work to be accessible you know he wants disability cultural work to be accessible to folks in nursing homes and folks who are institutionalized. And he really deeply believes in accessibility in those ways and not kind of locking our work up in academia to only be discussed in really heady ways. You know, he really, I think, seeks to find answers on the ground and to dig through our histories and find the connections that are present in our histories and also carry us through now. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot about the ways that, you know, uh, as organizers, we make the effort to, like, when we're doing an event, right, and we say, like, oh, this space is wheelchair accessible. But that's not the only, that's not it, right? That doesn't mean, like, oh, it's wheelchair accessible, great, we're, like, we're, you know, pro-disability justice, like, we're totally on board, right? It's, like, more than that, right? It's Absolutely. Like what does your content look like? Right. Are people wearing scents? What's in the food that you're serving? Are there PAs available? What are the bathrooms like? Are there flashing lights? Um, are you using synthetic fog? Are you using incense? Um, yeah, I mean, we could go on and on. You know, are there chairs available? Can people find spaces to sit? Um, there are so many ways to examine accessibility on physical levels. Um, also, like interpreters and captioning and audio description also for folks with sensory disorders and um, other folks who use those services. But um, there are so many ways, I think, to examine accessibility on physical levels and um, non-physical levels, right. you know, with and content and also ideological levels. Mm -hmm. You know, do you have disabled people in leadership? Exactly. If not, why not? Do disabled people come to your events even if they're in accessible spaces and disabled folks aren't coming? There's probably a reason why, right. you know, and so... I think that is so important for organizers. Um, and yeah, there are some concrete ways to make changes that aren't hard.
Right. Yeah. And that that that's sort of what I'm what I was getting as the ideological piece, right? Is like it's like and it reminds me of um when organizations are pro queer, pro trans, pro, you know, pac, but then it's like, oh, but then it's like an all white organization in leadership, right? Or it's like or there's like no trans people in leadership, right? And it's like or at your event, right? So it's like that piece too, right? It's like it's not just about like making the space physically accessible. It's like, well, what is how are you um holding and uh, in, in, in like um embodying disability justice in your in your work, right? How are you and and so is that something that Eli sorts of gets through is like how how do you make your work intersectional um and how do you intersect sort of like uh the queer queer justice and like racial justice and economic justice like how do you wrap all of those things in which i know is a huge question right it's the question that we're always asking ourselves like how do we make our work intersectional right well and eli does some good work in explaining how to do that but i think the even more brilliant work that he does is he pushes us to ask the questions and provides so much material that um, is so much information and you learn so much, but I think what he does more is just demands critical thinking and demands complex analysis. And so I think from reading this work, I came away with so many more questions. And um, start, at the time I was working in IDD community, and again, I didn't have a disability identity myself, but was kind of starting to form ideas about my own disabilities and his work I think creates such fertile ground for asking questions bravely that you might never have the answers to but the more that you get in there the more you're going to find and the more work you're going to be able to do to make the connections and to build the coalition even if you don't have the answers and I think that he provides that in such a generous way that's that's beautiful. I yeah, asking the questions you're afraid of. Oh yeah, I know it gave me like feels. I was like, oh, you have to ask those questions. That's like that. That's that's how you affect change. Like that's how you actually move forward in the uncomfortable and in the unknown, right? Um, so I forgot to mention in this um, episode is that we have a little audience here actually and so we have some some amazing organizers in Chicago and activists in Chicago that are here with us today um, and somebody has a question so I'm going to pass the mic. So I read the book several years ago it's been a minute since I cracked it open but the one of the pieces that had the biggest impression on me I think partially because I grew up in the west coast and I grew up in the Portland area um, was like how just immersed right this this story is in sort of his own like coming up in Oregon and in a logging community and um just really asks challenging questions about environmentalism and where race and class meet sort of our relationship to the planet um and that's not a, an arena I'm used to talking about ever, but I would love, I was just like, ah, I want to make sure that there's some comment on that and, and, and sort of how is uh, environmentalism sort of uh, wrapped into this conversation? Yeah, and I think that's so important because that's a lot of work that intersectional analyses often don't even get to. And... Um, because it's such a personal part about his experience, um, he not only gets to it, but gets into the personal aspects of it and the educational aspects of it and the like identity stuff that's all intertwined in there. Um, 
So the second chapter of his book is called Clear Cut Explaining the Distance. Um, and it's about Eli's relationship to the environmentalist movement, but you know, through the lens of his upbringing in a logging town. And through this, I think he asks people to think more complexly about their homes and what it means to grow up in a rural area and to love and feel nostalgic for aspects of where they came from, but also to feel at great conflict with it. But yeah, and also how classism comes into that. So he talks a lot about his educational system and the ways that he was kind of taught without being encouraged to ask questions that natural resources like trees and fish and water are renewable. And, you know, that's all part of the logic of living somewhere that's funded through timber taxes. You know, that's where the money's coming from is through through timber. And so um, why teach environmentalism somewhere that depends on that funding. So the environmentalist movement is often associated with like a middle upper class community, right? And so what does it mean to be from a working class place, to be an environmentalist, to have family that is really roped into, and and, family and friends and community and your whole schooling wrapped into being a part of a logging town and who has access to environmentalist knowledge, right? I mean, it's about how we're producing knowledge and who's producing it. It's not coming from that school system, right? And so how do you grow into environmentalist identity when you're coming from there? And I think he struggles with that a lot. Um, Maybe I can read this quote real quick. I am the activist who has never poured sugar who has never poured sugar into a cat's gas tank but knows how, the activist who has never spent a night on the top of a Douglas fir slated for felling the next morning but would, the activist who has never blockaded a logging site or a logging executive's office as I have military complexes. I am the socialist with anarchist leanings who believes the big private timber corporations like Weyerhaeuser and Georgia Pacific are corrupt and the government agencies like US Forest Service that control public land are complicit. I am the adult who still loves the smell of wood chips, the roar of a lumber mill, who knows out-of-work loggers and dying logging towns. Living now on the edge of corn country, I am the writer who wants to make sense. And I think that making sense is something that he continues with through the book and through all of his work um, because he wasn't given access to that knowledge, you know, and he grew into it later when he was living in urban centers where queer community was different and political organizing was different and um, just the kinds of knowledge that were flowing through the communities were different. And so I think that that is something that he continues to work with and continues to grapple with um, as a very staunch environmentalist, but also someone that is, you know, has this rural history yeah, so this is all so wonderful and great. Um, I have not read the book, but I'm interested in, and you've touched a little bit on it, but hearing more of his analysis on race, just because a lot of the times, I think when I think about disability and race, like people of color tend to be or are, have historically been and continue to be classified as disabled in their existence, like in schools and like 
as people who are homeless and like all these other things. And I don't think you, I also can't like talk about race and class separately. So I don't know. I'm just interested in hearing more of like his analysis on race and like how he talks about it then. And also I think like time is really important too. So this book was written like over 20 years ago. So how that like has possibly evolved or not. Um, So yeah, that was a really long. Yeah, no, I think like, when you're talking a lot about, um, especially now that you're bringing in the environmental piece, um, I, to me, I think a lot about Little Village, um, or I think about um, where I grew up in South Chicago, which was like a heavily industrial, we talked about this in the last episode, it's a heavy industrialized, um, it was a steel mill town, right? And so the, the, the rate of asthma was so incredibly high over there, um, but then also um, it was mostly working class, poor Latinx and, um, and black people that were living in that neighborhood um and uh just people were in that neighborhood were deemed as uh immobile or um incapable of action or incapable of this or you know using words like that or like or uh or or paralyzed because they're the 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 work that they're doing they need the work they need to do the work right so using words like that um to to describe um people of color or poor people in 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 the neighborhoods that I grew up in was something that I've experienced a lot so um so yeah so just to to that's something that I wanted to add to elaborate on Gabby's question is just like how how does Eli talk about race and and, and class and, and gender all of those things together right well and it's so interesting the words that you're using like immobilized and paralyzed almost demands a disability analysis um, which we could talk about for a really long time the ways that that all of those are kind of uh, dancing together and what what that means but um, absolutely I mean I think a lot of it has to do with the, he talks a lot about the kinds of access to social movements also. You know, he talks about um, the Stonewall 25 um, and how that was seen as this, like, important moment to queer community and also was so inaccessible to, I mean, he talks about, like, ticket prices and how he would go and socialize with folks but couldn't buy a ticket to the dance, you know, and how people are left out without really any questions being asked, you know, because there's there are ways that racism and classism comes in in very, um, like, loud external ways, but also mo- mostly what's happening is these kinds of discrete forms of oppression where people just aren't given access to uh, social movements or aren't given access to certain kinds of education and... Um, are objectified in all these different ways. I think that's kind of a connection also back to medicalization that we were talking about earlier and, you know, the ways that disabled people have been objectified and medicalized um, also has a race analysis component to it. And, um, you know, his history of the freak show goes into a lot of that and how people of color were objectified through there. Yeah, but there are places that social movements are located that exclude people of color and you know, exclude working class folks or even like meetings that are held in hours that working class folks can attend, for instance, you know, and, um, you know, that's one of those discreet, insidious ways that racism and classism is happening. Is there a specific chapter in this book that you feel like people should, like if, like if people didn't have time to read the entire book, like, is there just like one chapter that is in this book that can really just like summarize the entire book? Or, like, not even summarize the entire book, but just, like, a really important chapter that has a lot of key um, uh, messaging that he's really trying to emphasize. 
I mean, I think the very beginning, the mountain, he talks about the mountain as a metaphor. It's just a couple pages, and I think it's really powerful. Um, the mountain is kind of used as this metaphor that we are al- we're always trying to get to the top, but um, there are these people who live down at the bottom who are living there. He says, we live down there, down here at the bottom because we're lazy, stupid, weak, and ugly. We decide to climb that mountain or make a pact that our children will climb it. The climbing turns out to be unimaginably difficult. And kind of this, this way that we are like, always taught to be striving to get up the mountain and why are we doing that and what if we make home right here um and he talks about kind of the experience of disabled folks and how we are have these images of these overachieving disabled people and how that is seen as so good and can you believe that this person did this thing you know um climb this mountain and they were blind and you know and that then we're kind of held to these standards and why are we um and also how disabled people are seen as so inspiring for doing such everyday things driving a car having a boyfriend you know things that are not incredible feats but just because they did it while disabled like what a what a wonderful thing and he kind of goes into why that's so complicated and why um how that creates all of these problematic ways of thinking about ourselves and what we can do and what we should do and who we should be um you know and then he kind of goes into talking about home and how he says i will never find home on the mountain This I know, rather home starts here in my body and all that lies embedded beneath my skin. And, you know, I think think it's a good, it's a short first chapter and I think it's a really good way to start asking some questions about how you think about disability and why you think that way and how you might become more expansive in thinking about that. yeah, so I mean, I think starting with the mountain is a beautiful thing to do. <laughs> um, and also the Freaks and Queers chapter is also so, I mean, they're all so beautiful in so many different ways. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so again, uh, we're talking about the book Exile and Pride, Disability, Queerness, and Liberation by Eli Clare. Here today with the amazing Allison Copet and also some really amazing activists from Chicago that are just here hanging out, listening and chilling on a Friday night because we're a bunch of nerds um, and drinking lots of wine. We have two almost empty wine bottles here. So, um, But Allison, I want to close out with... Um, your favorite quote from this book, um, or maybe not your favorite, but maybe the most important quote in this book, um, and then we'll just we'll just wrap it up. And thank you so much for being on our show. Sure. Yeah, and thank you so much. Um, I think the part that I keep going back to that I think encapsulates a lot of both his poetic language and the way that he really deeply works with intersectional intersectional analyses is from the final chapter, it's called Stones in My Pocket, Stones in My Heart. Um, And he opens by saying, gender reaches into disability, disability wraps around class, class strains against abuse, abuse snarls into sexuality, sexuality folds on top of race, everything finally piling into a single human body. To write about any aspect of identity, any aspect of the body, means writing about this entire maze. This I know, and yet the question remains, where to start? 
maybe with my white skin, stubbly red hair, left ear pierced, shoulders set slightly off-center, left riding higher than the right, hands tremoring, traced with veins, legs well-muscled, or with me in the mirror dressing to go out, knotting my tie, slipping into my blazer, curve of hip and breast vanishing beneath my clothes, or possibly with the memory of how my body felt swimming in the river, Chinook fingerlings nibbling at my toes. There are a million ways to start, but how do I reach beneath the skin? Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based organizers. Special shout out to The Lit Review's very own sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College. Keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next Monday, same time, same place. Want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Keep reading!